your Bibles to Romans, I'm sorry, to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 20. For those of you that are visiting with us, uh, we have been for many weeks now studying the vital subject of conscience. We all have one. But how do we care for it? Not only that, but the fact that all have consciences. What do we think about other people's consciences? Christians are to put the consciences of others before their own. They're to look and to see and to evaluate and to think what is best for my brother and my sister. Can a conscience be bad? Yes. Uh, Can it be misinformed? Without question, I would be willing to say that everybody in here, beginning with me, at some point is misinformed in his conscience. We need correction from the word of God. And that is why we have spent a great deal, a great deal of time uh, on this subject. We also have been considering the matter of stumbling blocks, causing someone else to sin, or at the very least, inhibiting, slowing down, maybe even sometimes prohibiting them from a healthy walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is something that the Lord Jesus spoke about, the apostles spoke about, and we are warned not to do so. That being the case, we're going to be uh, back in Matthew 18, reading verses 1 through 20. If you would please stand with me once more, that we might give our attention to the Holy Word of God. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. May we all hear the Lord's voice in His Word. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto Him and set Him in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, Receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. The word offense here does not mean displeasing someone. It means causing them to stumble, giving occasion for them to sin. Woe 
unto the world because of causing others to stumble. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, give you an occasion to sin, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine, ha- if thine eye offend thee, plug it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. In other words, not one soul that believes on me. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Now how think ye? How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if it be, and if so be that he findeth, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he shall neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man, And a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Come thou fount of every blessing. I ask thee in the name of Christ, tune our hearts, not only to sing thy praise, but to hear thy word. Father, I pray in heaven, O blessed Son, I pray, O Holy Spirit, 
I plead with thee, almighty God. Make thy presence known here this morning. Here is thy temple. Fill it with thy spirit. We are thy living stones built upon the foundation of Christ Jesus. May we know the presence and the blessing and the power of the head of the church this morning. Father, we pray for those who do not know thee. Father, show thyself strong in their behalf. Draw them out of darkness. Prick their hearts. Make them to see and to know and to feel their sinfulness before thee. But may they not run from thee. May they hear of a great Savior, Jesus Christ, and run to him. O oh, Father, bring those in darkness to faith in Christ Jesus, the light of the world. And I pray, my Father, for thy dear people, for thy beloved people, for thy regenerate people. Fill them. Fill them with light, life by the Holy Spirit, and encourage their souls. Now hear us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. By the mighty, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, the church is a body united to Jesus Christ and to one another in this world and in the world to come forever. The church is a living temple of the Holy Spirit, animated by resurrection life. Each church is a kingdom of priests alive by supernatural power and offering the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. The church is Christ's Blood-bought property. He loved us. Washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. As the head of the church. Jesus has commanded us to love one another as he loves us. How we live then testifies of two things every day that we live in this world. Let me repeat that. How we live then testifies of two things every single day we draw breath in this world. Number one, our love for Christ. 
our life says, I love Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my prophet. He is my priest. He is my king. And his word is my marching order. Or you're not saying that. It's that simple. Every day. Every day. The second thing is our love for his people. I love them that he loves. If he loves them, I love them. Our life is saying that every day. Or we're saying, I love me. I love the world. I love virtually anything but God's people. Your life testifies of those two things. Therefore, Matthew 18 is essential for, the new, for new covenant life for new covenant believers. Matthew 18 speaks to us in the most clear language. We have a relationship with God's people. And when sin disrupts that relationship, the head of the church has told us how to deal with it. That's something else our life says. We obey him and deal with issues in our lives the way he commanded, or we don't. Which goes back to number one. I love Christ, and I love his commands, or I don't. It doesn't matter what your profession is. Your life is preaching every day, and it is telling the world your relationship to Christ and his people. Therefore, when those relationships get out of kilter, and they can in a hurry, the Lord has told us how to deal with it. As a community, a new covenant community, believers are in covenant with God and with one another. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, oh, I love God, but his people, huh? kind of a problem. You can't do that. Oh, we can in the flesh, but we're denying the testimony we've made as believers. This is what I'm saying. Because this is what Christ is saying. I can do without the church. You cannot if you're born of God's spirit. You can't do without God's people. If you can, you've never been touched by God's Spirit. We are in covenant with God and one another through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. That unites us and the Spirit of God dwells within us. The Lord's Supper testifies of this. Every time we come together for the Lord's Supper... We are testifying of Christ. We are testifying of our love for him and his people. We're in covenant by the blood of Christ with every one of his people throughout the world. It's just that we only see the ones in front of us. Jesus gives the church pastors, elders, teachers, his spirit, his word, and his people. So that we may grow up with him and in him, 
by the Spirit. Therefore, stumbling or hindering a believer's walk with the Lord Jesus is the opposite of his command to love. Do we see that? Oh, I pray that we do. To stumble or hinder, <coughs> hinder a believer's walk with the Lord Jesus is not only opposite of his command of love, it's rebellion to his headship and damage to his body. I don't borrow things from people generally. On rare occasion, I do, but it's a rare occasion. Why? Because I am a klutz and I will probably damage their stuff. Right? I don't want to do that because it's their stuff. This is Jesus' church. It ought to concern us that we might damage it. And that's one of those statements that should not put us looking around at everybody else. It should bring us right to the mirror of God's word and say, Lord, it's your church. Help me to handle it carefully. And that's especially true of the believers in our own congregation. Every church is Christ's blood-bought property. Right here, I'm looking at what he died on Calvary's cross to bring into existence. Be careful how you talk about it. Well, there's people here that don't do stuff that, that, that I do or they do stuff that I don't do. Mm, that, what world were you think, did you think you were living in? Of course, the Lord takes saved sinners and compresses them together so that the edges all rub on each other. And there's one solution for everything holding on to the head, as we said last week. So, <clears throat> it's his stuff. He's able to make the weakest of his children stand, as we've seen in Romans 14. And in the day of judgment, because Christ is the judge, we will give account for how we dealt with his stuff, his people in that day. So the title of our message is Stumbling Your Congregation, Part 3. <clears throat> so may we all, may all of us, beginning right here behind the pulpit, may we all bow before the Lord our Maker. May the power and presence of His Son, Jesus Christ, fill His temple today. And may the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear what he is saying to this church. We have asked, in what ways can we stumble others? And we have answered, well, we can stumble others in our family. And we work through all of that in some detail. And we can stumble others in our congregation. 
That's what we've been considering for a few weeks now. First of all, under that heading, we must grasp, and I hope that you have. But for those that have not, we must, you must, grasp the seriousness of the offense of stumbling Christ's congregation. It's not a little thing. Jesus, you can't read this passage and come away thinking, ah, not a big deal. Drowning? Hell? That's serious. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus taught his prideful disciples that to be great in the kingdom, they must be converted and humble as little children. He said that stumbling one of his children deserves drowning in the depths of the sea. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus pronounced woes upon all who stumble others, especially stumbling believers. To sin deserves hell. And to cause a believer to sin deserves the same dreadful burnings. And in verse 10 through 14, verses 10 through 14, Jesus exhorted us not to despise any of his little ones because he came into the world to save them from their sins. Do we hear that? Why did the eternal Son of God become a human being? That extraordinary and unique person, truly God, truly man. Why did God's Son come into this world? To save His people from their sins. Now the way many read that today is He came into this world to save His people from hell. Now, I want to be clear. Of course, when the Lord saves us, we do not need to fear hell. But the fact of the matter is, he came to save us from those thoughts, words, and deeds that deserve hell. That's what he saves us from. Our sin. Our sin our sin. Thankfully, Jesus' love for his people is so great that if just one of a hundred goes astray, he will leave the ninety and nine to find that straying sheep. The one thing that must grip us about that is... If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into them into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? Listen to the next line. I didn't write this, by the way. What does he say? <clears throat> he says, and if so be, he find it. That means that there are those that don't come back to the flock. That's very sobering. If, it doesn't say when he finds it. He said if he finds it. Now, he's teaching us some very sober things. 
Not everybody who professes Christ finishes the race. No, I don't believe that regenerate people can lose their salvation. I don't believe the scripture teaches that. But there are many that gather with God's people who have never been born of his spirit. So, Christ's love is so great, he won't lose one of his sheep. But there may be those who have been part of the flock that he doesn't find. Now, we must recognize then and affirm the necessity of church discipline. That's the whole point of this passage. Jesus has been working up to the relationships that we have, that we can sin, that we can cause those who profess to be Christians, we can cause them to stumble, and some of them don't come back. I know of a pastor who had a thriving church, and it was growing, and it was thrilling. And he left his wife and his family, his five children, for a woman the age of his oldest daughter. The church, shortly thereafter, shattered into pieces, primarily three big pieces. There were those that were grieved and brokenhearted and were left crying out to God saying, what just happened? but please teach me how to miss this next time. Then there were those that said, well, you know what? We're going to find a little easier Christianity than what we were hearing here. We're going to go out and find something that satisfies us more. And they did. And there was the third group that said, this is hypocrisy. We're gone. To my knowledge, none of them have come back. That's sober and sobering. But it speaks about the danger of wounding, damaging, injuring God's people. Loving his church and protecting it so that it doesn't fly apart. And I'm going to tell you what, every church, generally speaking, is just one step away from an explosion because they're in a war. People seem to think somehow that Satan and the powers of darkness have nothing to do with American Christians. If you're reading your Bible, uh, that will correct your thinking right away. We're in a battle and there are some casualties in that battle. Christ will not lose any of his sheep. But there will be those who we all thought were Christians. And yet their lives begin to testify to something else. So we must recognize and affirm the necessity of church discipline. This is one of the ways Christ keeps his church healthy. The word moreover connects the passage we are looking at to Christ's previous warnings 
about humility, stumbling God's children and despising them. And it connects to Christ's love, which seeks and finds the straying sheep. I want to continue to emphasize that because many of us here, wait, some people don't finish the race. Right. I didn't put that in there. The Lord did. It's in Christ's words. It's in Paul's letters. But those born of God's spirit will not be lost. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So, every part of Christ's instruction in this chapter relates to our love for him and of other believers. He gave us three steps for dealing with sin in a congregation, including stumbling others in the church. So last time we considered step one. Go to your brother alone. The first thing that we must do when someone sins against us is to have a private meeting. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Period. No footnotes to that. If you think that I have sinned against you, there are not 10 people that need to hear that. You need to come talk to me. And it's the same with any of you. Well, he said this. He did this. I'm really bothered by that. Okay. Uh, Love him enough to go and talk to him. Well, I don't want to cause a problem. You're causing a problem. You're disobeying the Lord. (laughs) You're causing yourself your own problem. Brethren, there's nothing like having a clear conscience. It's wonderful. But we can't live disobeying the Lord and expect to have that clear conscience. He's told us what to do. And we need to take the principle. You see me doing something that you think is dishonoring to Christ. I'm the one you need to come and tell. If I see you doing something that's in my mind questionable. I don't need to go to 5, 10, 15 others in the, in the congregation to get counsel on what to do. The great counselor, the wonderful counselor, has told you what to do. Go to them. Privately. Period. <clears throat> Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Sin is no little thing. Any sin, every sin, is an infinite evil. And to sin against a believer is to sin against Christ. Once again, I remind you, I didn't say that. Paul says that. So this step includes two things. One, go privately to the person that you believe sinned against you. Number two, go to the person for the purpose of reconciliation, not revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't go to get our pound of flesh. We go to win our brother or sister back. And when we go to the offender, Jesus will go with us into the mountain to reclaim the straying sheep. Now let us consider step two. 
Go to your brother with witnesses. Jesus' second step is a semi-private meeting. The doctrine of privacy is still here, but the borders of privacy have expanded just a little bit. Just a little. Take one or two witnesses with you. That means there's two or three people going. This needs to be mature people, not just anybody. It needs to be mature Christians who can sit and weigh and discern. The Lord said, if he will not hear thee, the one who's been offended, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. What a great grief when there must be the second step. It means there was a failure to win. None of us likes that, right? If I go for the purpose of, save, of winning my brother, <laughs> that's what I want. Oh, that God's people would always repent when confronted with their sin. And how important the word hear is. That hearing, if he won't hear you, that hearing is no ordinary, audible experience. We just heard that. That was an audible experience. I don't think it changed anyone's life. May have changed your nap. But it didn't change anybody's life. We're not talking about that. I mean, you know, you have children where <laughs> they still don't hear it. They can have the audible experience, but it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't know how to respond. This is a hearing that is responsive. In this context, when it says, hear thee, it means if he understands that you are right. It means if he admits that he is wrong. It is effectual hearing that responds agreeably to what is said. You're right. I did sin against you. Now again, this is not for vengeance. This is for healing. It's for healing. Sin separates people. And there are some of us that carry that hurt for many decades, many years. Some of you have had experiences so awful you can't think about them without weeping. It was somebody's sin. Or at least you thought it was. You might even have been wrong about that. We can think people have hurt us. Or we feel like they've hurt us when they didn't even realize they were doing anything that bothered us. But we just stayed hurt for all that time instead of going and saying, oh, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Husbands and wives be in a lot better shape if they just go and say why. Parents and children same thing. <clears throat> but the thing is, Christ's word here is very clear. If he 
will not hear thee. He will not acknowledge that he has has indeed done the crime against heaven of which you have accused him. If he refuses to admit his sin, you must go back with one or two witnesses. And this is an example of the Old Testament principle applied to the New Covenant Church. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, says Deuteronomy 19.15, or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. God is just. I was called in for jury duty once, actually a number of times, but there was once where this was occurrence, and the question was put to those that were gathered. There's all, there were no witnesses for this murder. How many of you have a conscience problem with that? One witness shall not rise up against any man for any iniquity. Or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. Now, there would be those that would say, ah, we're in a different system, we're in an, under different legal, etc., etc., etc. And so, you know, just go ahead and say, yeah, it was murder one. But I'm saying to you, God is just. And he says, you know, people can get bent out of shape with one another. And someone can say, he did this to me. She did this to me. I mean, uh, Witness the Me Too movement. We fully understand the horrors of the crimes that were being committed. But there were times when anybody could just jump in and say, Me Too. No other witnesses, nothing. He's guilty. The Lord wouldn't put up with that. He said, Two or three witnesses established the issue. Now there can be false witnesses. The Jews tried uh, and did get false witnesses to witness against the Lord Jesus. And there are other places in the scripture where we have the same. But the fact is, God's law is just. And that's what's being followed here. May the Holy Spirit help us to see Christ's love in this. Jesus is saying this needs to be just. You need to make sure of what you're accusing this person of these extra witnesses are beneficial for the accuser and the accused It's for both if the witnesses are mature wise christians discerning people they will biblically affirm one of the following either one the accuser has laid a false accusation or a frivolous charge on the accused Or number two, the accused is guilty of a biblically defined sin. Or sins, plural. Sometimes the witnesses can determine that no biblically defined sin is involved. Sometimes the witnesses can determine that the accusation is a biblically defined sin, but there's no evidence for it. 
And sometimes, sometimes, the witnesses can determine a biblically defined sin, evidence for it, and the accused confesses and repents. And then you've won your brother. You haven't gotten revenge. You've won your brother. That's the point. That's the whole point. It's not about getting even. It's about getting back together. Now, when that happens, that last one of the three, when that happens, the straying sheep glorifies the Lord by repenting of his sin. And he experiences reconciliation and restoration with the accuser. And the church becomes healthier. That's the point. Jesus is all about his church. He died on Calvary's cross so that they would have everlasting life. And he's making them into his image. He doesn't like the roadblocks other people set in front of them. When the accuser goes to a sinning believer a second time, he is still reflecting the mercy of Christ going after the straying sheep. It is an act of love toward the sinner. It's an act of love toward Christ. It is an act of love toward his congregation. I mean, there are so many people either miseducated about the word of God or so utterly ignorant of it that they go, church discipline, that's not nice. That's not love. Jesus, who is love on two legs, commanded it. It's love. It's love for his church. He wants them walking together. So the point of step two is the same as step one. Winning your brother, winning your sister, reconciliation to the glory of God and to the health of his church. But sadly, sometimes the evidence for biblically defined sin is clear, but the accused still refuses to admit and repent of it. And that brings us to the step number three. Go to the church publicly. Generally speaking, that ought to make the strongest Christian wince. Lastly, the accuser makes the church and its elders aware of the unrepentant sinner. This has all been private, and that's the way it should be until step two fails. What began in private now goes public at the command of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the alleged sin and its evidence now comes before the members of the church. If he shall neglect to hear them, that means if the accused won't hear the two or three witnesses, he will not acknowledge the charges they're bringing against him. They, he won't admit it. <clears throat> then tell it to the church. <clears throat> Five painful words. 
But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Some of us just don't want to believe that's there in the scriptures. It's all about love. It is love. You're reading love from the one who is love. His love doesn't fit our categories. And that's why we need our minds brought to his love. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his church. And so should we. He died a cruel, bloody death upon Calvary's cross to save his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said that's, that's a report that everybody needs to believe. That's what Jesus came to do. He died and rose again the third day, as we heard so wonderfully said before us on Wednesday, that they might have everlasting life. He gives them his spirit, a new heart, his word, and his people. That's not good news to some of us. But if you understand what the church is all about, you're thankful that he gives his people to walk with you. Jesus does this that they may grow in grace. He does this so that they may grow in the knowledge of him. He does so to prepare them for eternity with him. Do we get that? He wants his churches to understand that they are to walk according to his word. He is the Lord the one who commands us on what to do and what not to do. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Christianity is not just about do this or don't do that. But the fact of the matter is he is the Lord, the boss, the chief, the one who gives us our marching orders, the one who says, here's, <clears throat> here's how your marriage ought to go. What? It's my marriage. No, it's not. You're entering into my covenant. Really? Yeah. That's why I tell you, husbands, love your wives as I love the church. That's how you run your house. Anybody that doesn't is in rebellion against the Lord. Do we get that? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto Christ. Well, our culture hates that, and most women have been brought up in it. I say to you, friends, Christ tells us how to live. He sets it before us, and he gives it in words that we can understand. I mean, what should be the first question when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wow, how did Jesus love the church? So let me get into this book. Let me plow into this book. Let me read Matthew. Let me read Mark, Luke, and John and see my Savior and what he's doing. That's how I love my wife. Oh, that means I have to mm, deny myself. That's what Christ calls you to. 
Denying yourself for your wife. Be uncomfortable for her comfort. And we could go on. Do we not do we not see it? Jesus is telling his church this is how you should be living. Not just husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to your own husbands. But if people live in unrepentant sin in his house, he wants you to go and reclaim them. He wants you to reconcile them. And if they refuse to be reconciled, they need to be put out. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is our king. We live in his kingdom. It's a beautiful kingdom. When his people are walking according to his word, it becomes a mess when we go our own way. I wish I could say, I know that about everybody else, but I have to tell you, I know it about me. When I do not walk in his word, all of a sudden, my joy evaporates. It's just gone. The only thing that, that repairs it is repentance and faith in his precious blood. And there's always restoration. There's always reconciliation. Therefore, his church should model the same thing. Listen, the, every congregation includes pastors, elders, teachers for the perfecting of the saints. What? <laughs> for the perfecting of the saints. In other words, for growing up and learning how to walk the right way. Walking like Jesus. For the perfecting of the saints. Because there's a goal at the end of the race. What is it? For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son. Now, do we think that we can live in rebellion to him all the time? And that somehow we're being made like him? That's why there are pastors and elders and teachers. They're not perfect people. Anybody that's been here for very long knows that. But it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, building up that body because it's going to be like Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. That's one of the reasons the Lord commands us to preserve the unity in the congregation. Because that's what's coming in its perfect stage. Everyone here ought to say, man, I'm going to be a warrior for unity. Not for, uh, this is my turf. Stay off of it. Got it? This is my liberty, y'all. Uh, move away. You know, it's like one of those old things they used to have in cars. Step away from the car. You know, I mean, it's just like a lot of Christians today. It's just like, step away from my liberty. Whereas God says, no, die to your liberty for your friends. 
in Christ. Take up your cross. Nobody is Christ's disciple that doesn't take up his cross. Jesus said that. Luke 9, 23. Jesus, the head of the church, withholds nothing from us that's for our good. How come there's all this miserable stuff happening to me? Because there's so much of you that doesn't look like Christ. And he's chiseling it away. It's his love. He's making you like Christ. Why did this happen to me? Because your heavenly Christ loves you. It's the hardest school with the best teacher and graduation is wonderful. We're all about us. Christ teaches us to be all about Christ and about his people. Well, he does everything necessary to break, shape, and conform us to his image and to wean us from the world. Not so that we can say, this is my liberty and now I'm going to look like the world. Look, act, sound, watch everything that the world does, but I'm going to heaven, not y'all. And it doesn't work that way. He reaches in and he plucks people out of sometimes the thing they love the most. And he says, there's something higher. Me. And when you get to know him, you agree with him. You're better than all the things of this world that I cluttered my life and my heart with. Christ's command for them to decide whether the sinner will remain in fellowship is weighty, solemn, and heart-wrenching. Every regenerate soul grieves when hearing Paul's words. Deliver such a one unto Satan. What? What kind of love is that? Christ. Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I want to spend some time on this, but I, I don't have it today. But stop and think. This is the Holy Spirit of God speaking through Paul. Under the auspices of the head of the church. Do this. Let me tell you what, that's one of the most important parts of being a member of a church. I'm telling you, nothing will grow you up like church discipline and having to sit and see someone that you know, that you love, that you've given yourself in, in prayer to and for and they've committed an act and they won't own it. We've had it here. It's painful. The last church discipline we had there were almost no dry eyes in this building. And that's exactly what Christ wants. This is what sin 
does. It breaks hearts. It destroys lives. It destroys families. His son came to save his people from this. And here's one of them saying, yeah, I'm his, but I'm going on with this. That's sober. Every regenerate soul mourns when hearing Jesus' words. Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. I prayed with him. We talked with the, about the Bible together. We, we studied the same theology books. We had a great time learning of the things of the Lord. But there he is immovable in his sin. And it will break your heart. Sometimes it's one of the children from this congregation. And you've watched them grow. You've told them how much you're praying for them. You encourage them in the right way. And then they do what they want. It's very common. We learn how to say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, Jesus died for me. Oh, yes. And then when we get to the point that we're ready to go, we go. We'll do what we want to do. Your heart will ultimately show itself. And then the, Lord, the Lord's children have the very difficult thing of obeying him and saying, okay, we're going to sit down. We're going to review the, the evidence. Yes, they're living in unrepentant sin. The head of the church has said, we must excommunicate them. Now, you see, now, Paul had two things in mind. I think he had two great hopes when he said, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, for the salvation of the soul. Boy, that's a controversial passage. We don't have time to parse it. But I would just say it's pretty clear that Paul had at least two hopes here. The first one was that he hoped that the church would come to its senses and exclude those who refused to walk faithfully with Christ. The Corinthians were letting an awful sin, incest, go right on in their congregation. Paul said, I'm not even with you, but my spirit is, and I'm telling you what to do. You don't even have to go through steps one, two, three. Everybody knows he's committed this sin. There's no privacy here. Put him out. He hoped that the church would come to its senses and realize what it needed to do. He also hoped that the sinner in Satan's hand would come to his senses and repent and be among the sheep in the day of judgment. From the beginning of this three-step process, the accuser and the accused are the focus, relation, human relation. Something's happened that's broken that fellowship. This happens every day with people that will say, I love you. I love you too. And then they draw away. Hmm. Well, the church participates in hearing the evidence. Number two, the church decides whether the sinner is guilty or not. And number three, the church excommunicates the unrepentant sinner. Now, the singular pronoun 
thee in verse 17. It says that if he shall neglect to hear them, meaning the witnesses, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man. Let him be like a pagan. Well, wait a minute. He said he was my brother. Treat him like a pagan because he refuses to follow Christ. He's going on with his own thing. Number two. That word, thee, thee. If he should neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee. Singular. Singular. Why? That's significant. Since the congregation agrees with the accuser and concludes that the accused is guilty. Listen carefully. Based on scripture and evidence, the church must view him as an unconverted soul. The word view is important. The church doesn't pronounce that someone isn't a Christian. Only God knows that. Are you with me? The church doesn't say, I know you're lost and it's over. I can't say that to somebody. Unless they just renounced Christ in front of me. What is the deal? What are we seeing? What's taking place? Well, we do not pronounce a sinner to be an unbeliever. We view him like an unbeliever. Because our hope, even in doing this, is that the stray will come home. That's always what we're purposing. That is what we call excommunication. The church of Jesus Christ cannot permit a defiant, unrepentant sinner to the Lord's Supper. Because it's for forgiven sinners, repenting sinners, not perfect people. There aren't any. Beginning with the elders. It's for repentant sinners. It's the command of Christ because a sin against a member of Christ's church is a sin against Christ and his church. That is exactly what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We don't have time to go there, but I simply say he's the one that says, when you sin so against brethren, ye sin against Christ. I can't touch you in a sinful way without touching Christ in a sinful way. I can't speak to you in a sinful way without speaking against my Savior. You are his blood-bought property. You're his. Don't break his stuff. Well, Jesus, my friends, is the Prince of Peace, and he wants his church to be at peace. So with one mind and one heart, each member of the body must view the unrepentant sinner as outside the church. The church has to come to that conclusion. If it comes to that conclusion, they must view that person as lost, a pagan. Does that mean that we hate them? No. 
it means that we will pray for them and pray that the Christ who goes into the mountain for his people will bring him back. But we view them as those who need the Savior, not those who have repented and are faithfully walking with him. So sin is the greatest evil. Stumbling a believer into sin is a great offense to Christ and injury to his church. You don't love like Christ if you do not understand this passage and apply it the way he sets it out. Oh, I'm more loving than that. No, you're not. You're not more loving than Christ. And Christ says, if they don't repent, they're not permitted to the table because it's for repentant sinners. Well, I almost got where I wanted to go. I took aim. Sometimes my pulling the trigger doesn't quite happen right. Let me say this. There are four things here. Four applications, and there's a lot more than this. Obviously, after the months that we've spent in this, there's a lot lot more to consider. I wanted to set this before you, and... I'm right at my time. You just take a, a few moments and, and set these before you. First of all, we can stumble our brethren by judging or despising them in conscience controversies. You hurt the church. You stumble them when you make your view, which may just be preference. It may be your understanding of the scriptures, but you might be wrong. Do you know that you're right about those things? That's why Paul said, let everyone, every believer be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, that doesn't mean, well, I sit in the corner and I say, well, I don't think that's a problem. I'm fully persuaded. Mm -mm. That means you go to the word of God and you study and you listen to the evidence and you think about it and you look at it carefully I mean, there's so many things. Listen, there are so many things. I wanted to go over every one of these today. But I mean, among the Lord's people, there are things, there are conscience controversies. Some of you are going to, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. I mean, there are people that have been here that have judged one another because some eat homemade bread and others are still doing store-bought bread. I'm dead serious. How small is that we're the healthy ones and therefore we're the right ones well how many children you should have that's not your business that's God's business he said be fruitful and multiply and that's what Every married couple should be thinking, being fruitful and multiply. 
But you can't come in and say, you should have this many. I've got this many. I've actually heard, I hope it's not true. I'm telling you, I hope I am not passing on to you false information. But there have been those here in this congregation who, because they had more children than this group, saw themselves as superior in righteousness. That's superior in depravity. That's nothing but pride. Oh, we could go on. Head coverings. Women in the workplace. When Christ returns. Going to an AMA doctor or, or a naturopath. Do people divide over stuff like that? They sure do. And not only that, they take the high road of being more righteous than others. Do you understand the danger that is to Christ's church? Now, am I saying you should never talk about these things? I'm not saying that. Do you think that we should sit down and work through the scriptures and think about it? Yes. Before either one of you thinks, I'm right, you're wrong, you need to make sure that you actually understand what you're talking about and why. And there are going to be times when people, after all of your best arguing, are going to say, I, I don't see it that way. So what are you going to do with them? I'll tell you what a lot of people do. Secretly, they're not saved. And we think we're doing something good. Secondly, we can stumble our congregation with our words and our attitudes. I was going to read a passage from James. I would encourage you to read James 2, verses 2 through 4. Look at that later. But James brings up the idea that a guy comes in with flashy, rich apparel, and a poor man comes in. And the head overseeing the church at that particular point, apparently they, they, they were meeting in people's houses. He says to the, to the rich man, oh, come up here and sit in the front. And he says to the poor man, uh, you go sit over there. And James says, God hates that. Well, that wouldn't happen here, would it? Somebody who was not a member told someone visiting from the Blue House that they shouldn't come to this church wearing what they wore. Guys in the blue house don't generally have money for nice clothes. They're just glad to have any kind of clothes. They should be sitting right in here and hearing the word of God. By the way, they never came back. How arrogant is it that someone who's not a member says to someone else who's not a member, you shouldn't do that. You can stumble a congregation. Those men were here to hear about Christ. That's astounding. That's astounding. We can stumble our congregation by unnecessary... And by the way, let me add my own stumbling. I love marriage. I just think it's great. I'm thankful for the weddings I've had a part in over the decades. 
I'm thankful for marriage. I love it. I've been in it for 48 years, and I, I, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> Nothing sanctifying like marriage. Now, <clears throat> because I love marriage, it always grieves me to see somebody who once stood starry-eyed and looked at someone and said, I do, and then sit down and hear the, the, the awful things they do and say to each other. So I've mentioned from the pulpit a couple of times that, oh, it just grieves me. Uh, marriage counseling is just uh, really difficult. Well, I, there was a family here. They heard my words as, I don't like marriage counseling and therefore don't come to me for marriage counseling. And they happened to say, to me, we needed you. I had to repent. I was expressing the sorrow of seeing marriage so ugly, but I wasn't saying, I won't do it. But that's how they heard it. And I, I should have quickly corrected myself, but I didn't think I was saying anything that would be problematic. You can do what you think is good, and it stumbles somebody. Well, you, we can stumble our congregation by unnecessary controversies. I won't even get into this other than to say the Christian life is filled with controversies. But if you take one of your controversies and you push it and maximize it in your congregation, you are putting stumbling blocks in front of people. Especially when you know there are those there that do not agree with you. To shove it in their faces is a stumbling block and a sin against Christ. And lastly, we can stumble our elders by rejecting their counsel. I rush to explain. Elders are not perfect. Especially this one. They can give counsel that is not on target, especially if they don't clearly understand the situation of the counselee. One of the problems is that very often people will come for counsel and they'll tell you the little bit of the story that they want to tell you. And so you spend time working all of that out and telling them what you think they ought to do. And then they leave and they go, he didn't even touch what I was all about, so I'm not going to listen to that. Well, I understand that. I really do. By the way, if you want counsel, come Come tell the elder elders the whole story. Other than that, they're going to waste your time and you're going to waste theirs. Come and give them the whole story so they can, with intelligence, say, or at least something that approaches intelligence. Okay, here's what I recommend. <clears throat> the elders have given warnings to folks here for the purpose of safeguarding Christ church. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And we've had people that have taken that counsel and set it aside, and it's caused immeasurable heartache. We're not perfect. Our counsel's not always perfect. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. 
for that is unprofitable to you. What's that all about? Oh, it's about giving these guys all this power. No, it's not. It's about having a healthy church. It's very similar to being a, a father. Dads always have to make these difficult decisions. Well, yeah, I know the Bible doesn't say you have to be in at 10 o'clock, but that's when I want you in. But, but, but dad, the Bible doesn't say I have to be in at 10, right? Or whatever it is. Well, he's doing this for a reason. If he's a godly man, it's not because he has a power trip in mind. He believes that's the safest thing for you. You should be careful. I didn't put this verse in here. It's not for self-aggrandizement. Very often we give warnings. People go ahead and do what they want to do. And then there are people in the congregation that are upset. And the people that have done it are troubled that people are looking at them sideways. If the elders are the men that God has called them to be, their purpose for saying, don't do this, uh, we encourage you not to do that, they're not just trying to flex their authority. They're they know the church better than you. And they know what might be a very serious problem for the church that doesn't seem to be a problem for you. It's about Christ's people. So, brethren... All of this is to teach us to love one another as Christ loves us. Let us ever remember Paul's word to the Ephesians church. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church. We hear that? Unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Amen. Jesus loves the church, so should we. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Sometimes it's very hard for our flesh first to comprehend it and then to do it. But, O oh Lord, it always brings thy goodness thy healing, thy power, thy presence. Oh, Father, I know some of these words were difficult today, difficult to hear, they're difficult to preach. But, oh, God, the health of thy people is vital. Help us to learn how to walk with thee and with one another in the blessed, holy, and righteous name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to get ready for the baptism.